Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. I've been in the family office world for 20 years and I've always been interested in how people make good investment decisions and if it is possible to teach these skills in a family office context. This podcast speaks to investment and business thought leaders as well as founders and experts in the investment world to hear their great stories and insights. Today, we have Michael Sidgmore. Michael is a co-founder and partner at Broadhaven Ventures, which is part of Broadhaven Capital Partners. Michael is a leading expert in the alternatives going mainstream movement in fintech and was an early employee at iCapital. He was an early investor in Carta, Moneyline, Republic, Nowports, Pipe, and Allocate, among many others. He was educated at Middlebury in the London School of Economics and started his career at Goldman Sachs on their principal strategic assets team. I was looking forward to talking to Michael about the great interest in fintech platforms that are providing more access to alternative investments for RIAs, family offices, and accredited and qualified purchasers, which looks to become a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar marketplace. Please enjoy my discussion with Michael Sidgmore. Please note this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guest or host should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. Michael, when you started out, did you want to go into finance or did you want to be a policy guy? I actually went to the UK to try to play soccer. So Tell I, us about that. I, yeah, so I was a soccer player, very average one, but our club team in high school, we went and played some friendly matches in England against some premiership youth clubs in England and fell in love with England, the soccer culture. So I thought, oh, this would be fun to go and try to play over there. I did it rather unsuccessfully, needed a few hip surgeries, but ended up playing with a non-league or non-league is what they call semi-pro. Now it's called the National League. So it's actually where Wrexham FC, which Wrexham AFC, which you may be familiar with from the Welcome to Wrexham show on FX and Hulu. But I, I was trialing with a, the reserve team of a conference South team. So a semi-pro team. And it was a ton of fun, loved the culture and decided to went to Middlebury for a year, studied political science there, but knew what I wanted to study and decided to go to London School of Economics and studied international relations in a more focused way. That was, it was really all I studied there and really did not had necessarily have an idea about going into finance, but I did while I was on this accidental gap year trying to play soccer, but getting injured. I worked for this nonprofit called Room to Read, which was an international literacy NGO founded by a former Microsoft executive who built and scaled this into a award-winning, really high quality international literacy NGO. And while doing that, I worked as on the development team in London, first intern there. I realized that they were running a business. It just happened to be for social impact and a different type of ROI than a for-profit business. But that really got me interested in the idea of understanding business. And in order to understand business, I thought you had to understand finance. So at LSE, I studied international relations, but I ended up fortuitously getting involved with this LSE Alternative Investments Conference, ended up running the conference. And then from that, I was like, wow, I need to learn about finance. If I'm going to be running this conference on all. So, so over the summer, my second year at LSE, I took an accounting and finance course. That was my first finance course. And then I did an internship at Goldman in London. But what about the, the technology side? When did you become interested in computers? I know your family was part of the industry. Yeah. So my, my dad built a business called UUNet, which was part of the infrastructure for the internet. It was an internet service provider that ultimately ended up being a large part of the backbone of the internet. I was always in and around it, but didn't necessarily have an idea of, oh, I'm going to do this or finance. I think the intersection of those two things just naturally played out in the sense of I was interested in financial services and how it could impact people's lives in a positive way. And 2012, when I joined Goldman, it was right when financial technology was starting to take off this idea of fintech beyond capital markets infrastructure, which was fintech before it was called fintech. But 2012 was when Robinhood was starting, when Coinbase was starting, all these companies that were really changing finance as we knew it. So I got very lucky that I ended up on this team, principal strategic investments team at Goldman, a balance sheet investing team, investing Goldman's capital for strategic purposes to create a better functioning capital markets infrastructure from pre to post trade. So doing that, I learned all about how banks thought about financial services, how they thought about well-functioning capital markets. 
And that really provided the foundation for a lot of what we do now at Broadhaven and what I did on the operating side at Mosaic and iCapital. So you, you were at Goldman. And then what did you do after that? I was thinking a lot about how fintech companies and in particular marketplace businesses could disintermediate traditional financial institutions. So companies like Lending Club were also the hot topic at that time. They were thinking about how you could use peer-to-peer financial services in the marketplace model and construct to change the way in which people could interact with each other in financial services, remove the middlemen, reduce costs, increase transparency. FinTech has played out in slightly different ways than that. I think the largest institutions have figured out how to innovate themselves. And it's also much harder to remove middlemen than we think. But in doing so, I spent a lot of time thinking about what was the kind of disruptive path for FinTechs. And about almost a year into my time at Goldman, I got a call from a company called Mosaic Solar Finance Business that at the time was just pivoting from Kickstarter for solar. So the idea of crowdfunding small community solar projects, mainly in Oakland, California, and then across the state where people would basically donate to crowdfund commercial solar projects and the installation of these panels on rooftops of community centers, things like that. And we're pivoting to Lending Club for Solar. So they called me up and said, hey, we'd love for you to join build out the sales team investor network. So I thought, okay, one is solar's a really interesting industry. They had all the tailwinds, obviously, from the Obama administration. The cost to produce a solar panel had gone down like 99% since from 1975 to 2010. So it made sense for certain states to go solar. And clearly there was this movement around the consumer side of one, impact investing, and two, just the idea of transitioning to clean energy. So I was like, they're right on solar, whether or not this company specifically is right. And then the idea of the marketplace model was something that had really taken hold with me, whether it was lending club, or even companies outside of fintech, but the Ubers, the Lyfts of the world, where marketplaces were really finding ways to connect people with the foundations of crowdfunding. AngelList could be another example of a marketplace business in a sense. Kickstarter obviously was somewhat successful at that time. So I said, all right, I'm going to take a bet and join Mosaic. And I joined as the first sales hire, really trying to help the institutional investor community, which to us at the time meant family offices, wealth managers and impact investors invest into solar projects. Now, it was a challenge. Investing in commercial solar projects was not easy at smaller size and scale. We had the classic marketplace challenges, but ultimately pivoted the business to a residential home solar loan origination business that's done now over 11 billion in home solar loan originations. It's one of the largest tech-enabled solar loan originators in the US. It's backed by Warburg Pincus now. So Great learning experience in terms of understanding some of the marketplace dynamics with these alts companies. And then ultimately, Mosaic was a pioneer in a sense of the alternative investments landscape. We had to figure out and try to help people understand where did a fixed income solar investment fit into their portfolio. So I learned a lot about how to educate the wealth community on how to think about which part of the pie they should be taking dollars from. Should it be the alternatives bucket should be the fixed income bucket and help them understand where soul fit in. That really informed some of the things that we did at iCapital. So I then moved to iCapital Network very early on. How did you get connected with them? So I knew the CEO, Lawrence Calcano. We'd known each other for a while and he was thinking about joining iCapital as well. He was at Goldman. So he was a partner at Goldman. He ran, he ran the tech banking group in the 90s and then into the early 2000s. He knew the iCapital guys, was thinking about joining, called me up and said, hey, I know you invest in some of this kind of stuff at Goldman. And then you worked at Mosaic building an investor network. We're building something pretty impact by Credit Suisse very early on. It came from the origins of the private funds group at Credit Suisse, the placement agent group. And we all thought that the high net worth community didn't really have systematic access to private equity funds, hedge funds, and venture funds. And iCapital could be the platform that connects them to those opportunities. So I decided to join iCapital, was one of the earliest employees, pre-product, built the sales team or investor network team with two other guys, effectively helping family offices and wealth managers navigate the private market space. And over time, grew the iCapital platform to billions of dollars of AUM, really as the rails that would enable the high net worth community to access private funds at lower minimums, because not everybody can invest five or $10 million dollars or $20 million per fund. And on the fund side, they don't want to manage the administrative burden of dealing with 100 investors who are 
investors. It's just a real pain. Takes a lot of time, effort, people, manual process, potential for error when it comes to doing the quarterly reports, the K1s, et cetera. So iCapital solves all those problems end to end, was really pre to post investment. And my time at Goldman really informed me of that, of how do you think about infrastructure across the life cycle of a trade or an investment? And that's effectively what iCapital has done for the private markets landscape is how do you help people from pre to post investment navigate the alt space, invest in funds and companies, and then manage those investments? And ultimately, iCapital has scaled beyond just the high net worth community and really works with the intermediaries, the wealth managers, the private banks, works with most of the private banks and manages their feeder funds. And then the big asset managers like Invesco, firm we partnered with BlackRock, became a big investor and has really built the infrastructure for the alt space. So was one of the early employees, was a seed investor in that business as well, was a seed investor in Mosaic also, and really got a front row seat at a lot of the alt that was going on and has really informed part of what we do at Broadhaven. We invest globally into fintech companies, everything from consumer or SMB lenders to digital banks to credit card, corporate card products to payments infrastructure. But a large part of what we do at Broadhaven is alt space, because I, I really do believe that this space, whether it grows to 15 trillion of AUM, like PitchBook has recently predicted, or 30 trillion, like Goldman has predicted on the upper end in the next five years, there's going to be more dollars flowing into the alt space. Because one, you have a whole new channel that's been opened up and it under allocated alt, which is the high net worth channel. And you now have the infrastructure and the technology that's been built to support that. Was there any technological changes behind that? I think now, you know, the big first mover in this space was hedgefund.net. That's almost 20 years ago. And that was that was great for the time, but it was kind of kludgy. Was there any technical changes that made this possible after 2012? So I think one is technology has gotten significantly better. So the technology that an iCapital or an AngelList or a Carter or Republic have built has gotten significantly better. But I think it was really a confluence of a few things. I think technology was a piece of it. You need to build the infrastructure and the rails for this to work. But I also think there's a few other things that are really important in why alts and why now and why I started a whole content platform called Alt Goes Mainstream at the end of 2020, because it felt like we've reached the tipping point, no return where alts are going to be a part of everybody's, for the most part, everybody's portfolios. And they're comfortable investing online too. That's the other thing where 2014, 2015, we had to convince people to invest into private equity funds on an online platform. That was a big leap of faith for people putting hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars or advisors allocating millions and millions of dollars of client capital into the alt space was we're investing on this online platform. So two things came to mind. One is why would a fund need to go to an online platform to raise capital? Can't they do it with the traditional placement agents or can't they do it themselves? There has to be some red flag. Same with companies. That I think has disappeared because the ease of use of investing online and technology is certainly a piece of that. But I think there's a few other things. One is you obviously have the low interest rate environment aiding private markets and the need for people to move out of the traditional 60-40 portfolio and move into higher returning asset classes. So Alt provide higher returns than some of these other asset classes. And I think people realized they needed to do that. For context, advise average wealth manager has clients with about 1% to 5% allocation to alts. Compare that to the top performing endowments institutions, the Yales, Harvard's 20, 30 plus percent allocation to alts. And now we have to put a pin in that because now many of these institutional investors have the denominator effect problem where they're overexposed private markets in current environment. So therefore, they're going to be allocating less. But if you think about the opportunity in the alt space, it's that most the wealth community is under allocated alts. Maybe they shouldn't be 20 or 30%, but they certainly could be 10%, 15%. And there's such a significant gap between where they are today, and where they could go. So I think one is obviously the interest rate environment and the economic climate that had wind in the sails for alts growing. Two is you have the regulatory side, when you think about the what I call the downstreaming of alt, so enabling access to all investors to get access to alts, which is there's been regulation that's been very favorable for private companies and even funds to some extent to be able to raise from non-accredited investors. It's the technological innovation. It's the interest rate environment, the regulatory environment where regulation crowdfunding enables any company to raise up to $5 million. It started out at $1 million. That increased to $5 million a few years ago. And those companies could raise from anyone, whether they're accredited or non-accredited investor. That, I think, was a big tailwind for retail crowdfunding platforms, retail participation into 
alts. So I think those really are the key trends. And then the other piece was comfort with investing online. That, that I think had reached a tipping point. And it's now I think many of these companies or funds realize that they can access a broader base of investors by going on these online platforms and listing their funds or companies on those platforms, rather than see it as a negative of this is negative selection where they they can't raise from other channels. So therefore they're going here. I think we are well beyond that point, whether it's for the iCapitals of the world where many of the top GPs funds are putting their funds on platforms like iCapital, Case, Moonfair, et cetera, to enable people to access these opportunities because they realize that this channel is the growing channel. Blackstone, they believe that half their AUM by 2024 is going to come from the high net worth channel. So I think you're seeing very large firms believe in this space. And I think that's all been a part of why the technological innovation underpins it and the market structure evolution is there but it's all these other factors are enabling this to happen. So at Broadhaven, that's what we believe in. And we've really been kind of capital markets people our entire careers. So we have a global early stage venture fund that my partner and I started in 2017 after I left iCapital. Greg Phillips, my partner at Broadhaven, he been in capital markets for quite some time. He was at Citadel Securities where he was part of building out Citadel Securities. He then built and sold a derivatives broker for a few billion dollars back in 2009. And he met his banker who ran trading and tech M&A at Goldman, Jerry Von Dolan. And Jerry wanted to start a boutique financial services focused investment bank. Him and Greg built that together. The two of them, it's now 75 people and done about 90 billion or so of M&A transaction volume, a lot in capital markets. Done a lot of work with ICE, other exchanges like SIBO and BATS. Done a lot of work in asset management and alts. So Franklin Templeton, we advised them on the Leg Mason acquisition, which was over $6 billion. The Lexington Partners acquisition, big secondaries fund for almost $2 billion. Advised Cambridge Associates on a partial sale of their business. So have done advisory work across really all areas of financial services. And Broadhaven started seeing a lot of fintech companies come to them and say, hey, can you help us raise capital? Can you help us sell our business? Can you help us connect into large financial institutions? Because that's a network that we have. And Greg and I actually met through an angel investment we both made in New York and got to know each other. And we just saw a very similar view of the world when it came to how we thought about fintech. This was 2017 when there weren't a ton of fintech focused VCs. And we thought that we could be complementary to many of the traditional VCs on cap tables because we had the institutional financial services expertise and network. And that would work very well with the traditional Silicon Valley or mainstream VCs in terms of working together on a cap table. And we felt that we had this unique aspect to our business, which I think has played out. We can help companies from seed to IPO at Broadhaven. And we've helped them all along the way. We've helped them connect into financial institutions. We've helped them get large credit facilities. We've helped them raise capital if they need to. We've helped them get acquired. So it's nice to have this strategic, but not strategic in the same way that a bank strategic investment arm requires business unit participation, we can invest in any sort of fintech we want. We're just able to bring to bear this much bigger platform to help our companies. So we've invested globally into fintech companies, a number of companies in Latin America. We're one of the earlier US investors down there, and then have investments across Europe, Asia, Africa, in addition to the US. Might be helpful if we could drill down on maybe a single one of those investments and and maybe walk through your process, how you found the company, your discussions with them. I'll give you two. One in Latin America, which I think speaks to the breadth and depth of fintech. We have a view that pretty much everything is fintech or fintech adjacent. So this concept of embedded finance, I think, is really taking hold. So companies that may not start out as financial services companies, they start out meeting their customers at a point of need. They can then embed financial services products. So an example is Nowports. So Nowports is similar to Flexport, but for Latin America. So it's a, it's a supply chain and logistics business. What they do is they have a software platform. So it's a software product, B2B SaaS, where they enable importers and exporters and everybody in between the value chain process to track the shipment of goods of container freight, where 90% of all goods in the world are shipped by sea freight at some point. So massive market, very fragmented market too. There's a lot of freight forwarders, but that are not digital. Before Flexport came around, there were no digital freight forwarders in the world. They had not used technology to streamline the process. 
everything was paper-based, phone-based, email written on, written over fax. It was just a very clunky, human-intensive and error-ridden process where 40 billion a year of goods were lost or stolen at sea. So the idea of Nowports is to build the operating system for the shipment of sea freight. Now, that's just a B2B software business. They mainly ship from Asia to LATAM, but have since added plenty of trade routes to the US, to Europe, et cetera. Built a very large business at this point. But when we first saw the business, they came out of Y Combinator. We met them at Y Combinator years ago, back in 2019. And they were just building a SaaS business. But when we started talking to the founders, Alfonso and Max, we quickly came to the conclusion together that there was an embedded finance business here. Because sure, you start with a software product that's just helping people more efficiently and effectively track the shipment of freight, and you do it online. And you get all the stakeholders in the process of the freight forwarding world to come onto this platform. But you also realize that when you have the data and information, you can then do things like supply chain finance. So now Ports has always thought of themselves as an embedded fintech company, even if they're a software company serving the supply chain and logistics world. So about a little under a year ago, we launched a supply chain finance product that's now done a pretty significant amount of lending to importers, exporters. So we believe that's a fintech business. It's just embedded financial services in its software platform, effectively. Saw them at Y Combinator, had a very similar view on where this business could go. We invested and then we led a seed round. So I led a seed and have sat on the board for the last three years and the business has since grown. How do you think about the real value of that extra technology and how that helps them? So I think what it does is it, it, A, it adds revenue to the business in a higher margin fashion, right? So lending product, you, you don't have to spend money to acquire these customers because they're already customers through the software product, number one. Number two, it reduces churn and creates more stickiness too. So it adds a bunch of really interesting components to the offering. There's other businesses, B2B marketplaces that have done this. Toast is a great example of this. Toast is a restaurant point of sale solution for consumers to pay seamlessly, but they've embedded the HR side of things. They have Toast Capital. Now Ports is conceptually similar to that, where you're just able to wrap more products and services around the business, ultimately increase the LTV of that customer and reduce the churn of that customer. So we look at the business as it's not quite a financial services business, it's a software business and hopefully should be valued like a software business. In Nowport's case, there's certainly a there's a marketplace or GMV element to it. So it depends on how investors look at it. Some investors look at it as a GMV business. Some investors look at it as a software business. But then you add a lending component to it, and that just that adds to the business. It's a financial services is a component of the business. It's not the only piece of the business, though. So it's not a pure play lending business, and I don't think will be valued as a lender as a result of that. So it's a combination of these businesses put together, which I think make for a very powerful combination because. What happens is the company that works with Nowports, the customer, they can then use Nowports for a whole host of things over time. And I think that's where embedded finance gets really interesting, is that you can use one platform for so many different things. And as a result of that, the business can just expand horizontally. So that's what we like about embedded finance. I actually think connecting this to space has a lot of similar characteristics when you think about the businesses, because you can expand horizontally in a number of ways. One of our other investments, Carta, is a good example of that. Carta is a cap table management product, but they've figured out that once you start with the atomic unit of value of the line item on a cap table, that ownership of equity, you can then build so many different layers of the onion around this. You're starting with an individual employee or an investor's share of a company. But then when you think about that, you can branch out into fund administration, which they've done. So they offer fund administration on the fund side that because that's also all about getting the atomic unit of value, the equity investment or ownership. And then once you have that, you can do things like a secondary market. Carta has Carta X, which enables people, individuals all the way to funds to trade interests in private company stock. So when you think about these businesses, they might start in one place. I wrote a post about this in Alco's mainstream last year called Alts Hidden in Plain Sight. These businesses are much bigger than you think they are. You just have to start with a particular wedge and then expand horizontally. So embedded finance is a concept that we think about more for outside-in fintech businesses. Like Nowports is not a fintech business at first blush, but it can add financial services. All its businesses are fintech businesses, but we conceptually see the same thing where you can build these 
horizontal platforms that add more and more products to wrap around the customer. And then you serve them in a number of different ways. And then it becomes a de facto place in which they do all sorts of business. Yeah, I think you had a great interview with Carta where you talked about the fact that everything went back to the spreadsheet and figuring out all the problems came back to spreadsheet problems, which of course is what every investor has. That's Henry from Carta. That's his quote. And I love it because it really does distill down how he thinks about Carta, which is thinking about the literal line item. That's the atomic unit of value. And then what you can do from there. And what he's done and the team have done there is they've gone and thought about what are the different spreadsheet businesses we can go after. And then they've just built additional business lines across Carta's platform that go after spreadsheet businesses. When we're talking about the alts platforms, I guess the devil is in the details. And this was a big problem always with the back with the fund of funds business is are you paying for the software or are you paying for the access? It's a great question. I think the first generation of alts businesses have been distribution platforms. I think that's defined this first wave of alts. I think that's been really important too, because the reality is what investors need first is access. Then I think the quality of the technology and the experience that customers, both GPs or the supply side and LPs, the investor side have is going to be really important when it comes to the next wave of alts, which I believe is around the data and analytics. But I think many of these alts platforms that have seen success, they really start with the core idea of distribution. So whether it's iCapital or Republic, which is focused on the individual investor, iCapital is more focused on the intermediary, the wealth manager, the private bank that deals with the high net worth client. What they're really doing is providing access to start. And then from there, you can offer a lot of other things. But I do think that the first problem to solve in the alt space was access. Now that's been solved, then you can start layering on other things like analytics. And we're seeing a lot of innovation in that category, both from these distribution platforms themselves, how they're thinking about layering on analytics around portfolio management, what you can do around the types of things you can then invest in once you know types of investments and holdings that people have. But then there's also a lot of innovation around the data ingestion of alts, the portfolio monitoring, portfolio accounting, things of that nature that are going to make the alt space more efficient because I think where this ultimately ends up going, and I look at it through the lens of market structure evolutions, is if you think about what happened with equities, fixed income, these were, at one point, they were more manual phone-based industries where you didn't have a ton of data until Bloomberg, Thomson Reuters came around. You then had, from pre-trade, you had price discovery thanks to data. You then had the exchanges or the way to trade or invest. And then you have post-trade custody clearing. I think alt is going through a similar market structure evolution from pre to post investment trade. And as a result of that's why I think analytics and data is going to be very important as you think about this market becoming more liquid. We could debate whether or not that's a good thing, but I think it will just because of the efficiency around the technology innovation that's happening that's making this market more efficient. Why don't any of the big players dominate this space? All the big banks have had platforms for a long time. The Jobs Act was 12 years ago now. Why doesn't KKR own this? Why didn't Credit Suisse come in with their platform and just start offering it to QPs? So I think the answer is more nuanced than that. And I do that those specific examples. KR was an investor in a company that iCapital acquired called Artivest. Many of the large private equity funds Carlisle, Apollo, KR, Blackstone are all investors in iCapital and some are investors in others. Apollo is an investor in Case as well. So I think of these big private equity funds, one are investors understanding that the technology is really important. And it's also hard to build the technology yourself. I think that's why a lot of the banks work with firms like iCapital. So there is somewhat of a regulatory component to that. When banks manage feeder fund platforms, they, A, were the GP of the feeder fund. What that meant is that those were assets that were held on their balance sheet effectively. And those were private market assets are harder to mark, they're riskier. So you have to post capital against that on your balance sheet, post GFC and Volcker rule. And as a result of that, I think many of these banks wanted to move that off their balance sheet as return on equity was declining. In addition to that, it takes a lot of people and effort and time to build any technology around the feeder fund architecture that you have. And it just costs a lot of money to manage a large number of people. So I think if you think about businesses like iCapital as an industry consortium, to some extent, that's what they are. Many of the banks have invested. 
many of the large private equity funds have invested because there's an, now an independent player that they can all use and work with to build the rails for the infrastructure that powers private markets. And iCapital has majority of the retail alts flow into private funds that goes to its platform because you have many of these players who want to benefit from it, but also don't want the costs or the burdens associated with it. So I think other people have thought about this or found ways to get exposure to it, but haven't necessarily been able to or wanted to build themselves. And I think ultimately, it's probably better for the industry that way, rather than have one bank build this or try to do it themselves. Because then other banks may not want to work with them. Other private equity firms may not want to work with another private equity firm that owns this themselves. I think that's an important nuance to all of this. I also think that any of these big firms do realize that the future is retail or the individual investor, and they all want to be involved in some way, shape, or form, but that doesn't necessarily mean owning it themselves. So a lot of the older bottlenecks have become solved problems, client onboarding, data rooms, e-signatures. Those are things now that you just expect. And a lot of those issues, for the most part, obviously, are, are considered solved problems. But due diligence, of course, is always the hard one. What, what kind of advances have you seen there? Some of that is moving online, but I think that's the type of thing where you still need some level of human capital required. Many of these platforms, whether it's iCapital, Allocate, Case, et cetera, Republic on the retail side and diligence and companies and other platforms like Republic doing that. The diligence component needs to be done in-house to some extent and even extend that further to banks. Banks may not have a technology platform like iCapital, but they have their own menu of funds. They have diligence teams that onboard funds or companies or direct deals onto their platforms. So that I think is an area where there's some level of technological innovation that can be done. And that's where I think the data and analytics innovations and alts will help because it'll help any sort of investor, the due diligence professional or the end investor who's investing into these investment products, funds or companies. They will benefit from the advancements there, but there still has to be some level of human capital or human time invested into doing the diligence. So that's a piece of this where I think it's table stakes for the platforms to have because any marketplace business even the likes of Amazon, there's an element of quality control to them. So you have to have high quality products in your platform or marketplace. Otherwise, people and buyers of your products don't trust you. And if you don't have trust, then you don't have any transactions. So I think many of these platforms understand the need that you can't just create a listings marketplace necessarily. You either have to create a curated marketplace or be the infrastructure or both iCapital has figured out how to do both. It's a curated marketplace of high quality vetted funds that are offered to the high net worth community. And it's also an infrastructure business that the big institutions, the banks, the private equity funds, alternative asset managers, wealth managers use as the rails for what they do. I think you can be one or one or the other, or you can be both in very select cases. But I think being a pure listings marketplace that doesn't handle quality control when you're dealing with people's money, I think is very difficult. It's interesting. There's been such a growth in the RIA space. And one of the interesting side effects of that is that RIAs are learning that they only compete on advice and that they're leaning more towards their advisory roles as a lot of these problems are solved and a lot more offerings come to the table. But I'm wondering what you think of where is the, where's the advisor fit into all this? How's the advisor going to use this? So I think it's now also table stakes for the advisor to have an understanding of and the ability to access alts. So we talked about this earlier that many advisor clients are relatively under or unallocated to alts. To some extent, that's been a regulatory challenge. Advisor clients who are not accredited investors or qualified purchasers can't access private funds. That, that I think will change over time too. There's innovation and in product in that way. The other piece is the technology side. Until recently, advent of technology-based feeder fund architecture had been hard to come by. So it would be hard for advisors to put together a group of their clients to invest in these funds. And a lot of these funds didn't necessarily want to accept that capital. I think we've moved beyond those points to where these platforms are now giving advisors access. Now, I think these platforms are just table stakes, right? An advisor can go to iCapital, they can go to Case, they can go to Allocate. If they want direct deal flow, they can go to other platforms. and I think they can get access to all of these products now. Now it becomes about, this is where the human component comes in and it becomes about the ability to figure out and pick which assets or investments are best for them. 
So that's why I think the advisor will still require a human component, but they can be aided by technology, whether it's on the more traditional side. So like the Betterment's wealth fronts, the robo advisors, I think advisor, the advisor community will still end up benefiting from innovation there and automating some of their investment processes. But particularly on the alt side, I think there will still be a human component to this because they're still going to have to pick which assets make the most sense for their clients. Again, once the data and analytics continues to improve in the alt space around predictive recommendations for portfolios based on allocations that people have based on the current market environment that we're in. Oh, maybe now higher interest rate environment. Maybe you should have more exposure to private credit or real assets or real estate based on your client's portfolio situation. Maybe they have a lot of venture or private equity exposure already. So I think we're going to get there in the alt space with innovation around that's going to help advisors, but ultimately advisors are going to have competence in the alt space. And I think the most sophisticated advisors, the multi-billion dollar advisor firms or roll-up platforms, the dynasties, high towers, focuses, or even the Rockefellers, Cerities, et cetera, which are, they're not quite roll-up platforms, but they're very large 60 plus $100 billion plus platforms. They realize that clients want and need alts. So they need to have that as a way to get clients because private banks already have that, right? Private banks have the menu. It may be their own curated menu so that you're not getting access to things outside of that. But I think everybody realizes they need to have that as part of what they offer so that clients choose them as opposed to choosing someone else. So that's where the education component comes into play. And that's why I think it's so important that advisors, even if they're not doing a lot, in alts or even crypto, if we take this even a bit further, understanding it is so important. I've talked to some advisors where you ask them like, what are clients asking you about? And they say, alts and crypto. It's, maybe it's only a small percentage, 5 10% of what you're actually allocating for them, but it's 90% of the discussion. So advisors at the very least, one takeaway is they need to be prepared. And then from there, they can figure out where and how to allocate based on their own client needs, their comfortability with alts and things like that. And so let's take another constituency, which is the fund managers. How does this affect the process the managers go to fundraise? Will this involve consultants less or more? Is this a way to solve the distribution problem from them? So historically, consultants have dealt with the institutional community. And I think consultants will still serve a very large role with the endowments, foundations, pensions, right? The Cambridge Associates, et cetera, of the world will provide critical functions to connect managers to institutional investors and provide a vetting process. That won't stop. Now, there may be innovation around analytics, grading of fund managers, things of that nature, but I don't think that will stop. I do think that every manager needs to understand and figure out how to work with the high net worth community because that's where a large portion of growth in their AUM is going to come from over time. And we've seen it on the private equity fund side. So the likes of Blackstone, Apollo, KR Carlisle all have various forms of wealth management groups or high net worth sales teams that work with the RIA and high net worth family office channels. The fact that you see that, I think, signals that they know that a lot their growth will come from the high net worth channel makes total sense, right? There's not many new net new pension funds being created. You now have in current market, you have what's the denominator effect where many of these larger institutions are overweight their exposure to private markets. They're illiquid assets. They can't necessarily sell them or would have to sell them at large discounts. They may not want to. And they're now overexposed to private markets. So they're not allocating, if anything, they're scaling back their commitments. And in Places like venture investors were deploying capital so fast over the last two years that they were coming back into market very quickly. And I think it messed up the allocation cadence and models for a lot of these larger LPs. So where's the growth going to come from in people's LP bases and fund managers' LP bases? It's going to come from the high net worth channel. So that's where I think these platforms are going to play such an important role in helping provide that connective tissue. And that's why every fund manager, in my view, should get smart on how to deal with the high net worth community. I will caveat that by saying it's not easy. The high net worth community, one, needs to be educated. I think they want to be educated, but they need to be educated on the merits of private markets. And that's the various components, private equity, venture, private credit, et cetera, how it's all different. But two, how to navigate and access this market is so challenging. We both know that the family office community is very idiosyncratic in how they make decisions. One family office, no one family office. 
how do you get to them is another question. Many of these managers may struggle with that. I think that's where platforms may come into play and help is they may provide the clearinghouse or exchange for those two groups to come together. And that's why I'm still really excited about the distribution side. I think that the distribution battle has to some extent been played out. The iCapitals of the world, et cetera, are the larger platforms. But I still think there's so much to do on the distribution side when it comes to the amount of capital that can flow through these platforms that more and more fund managers are going to realize that. Now I think you're seeing the venture world even realize that they should go to the high net worth community as a way to fundraise, even though they historically, A, haven't had to, and B, there's always been some level of skepticism that it's not the same as institutional capital because are they really going to come back for fund after fund? Are they going to be able to? Is it the same type of decision-making cadence process? No, it's not. But I think now these platforms create the infrastructure where it may be different investors in different funds, but a wealth manager may still be able to allocate $20 million per fund. It just may come in different sizes and shapes from their clients, but that's for them to figure out. And that's where the infrastructure handles that, whereas they don't have to interface with NLP in that way as a GP. So I think that's where the excitement around innovation comes from there. One of the side effects of the technology cycles in finance has been fee compression. How do you think these platforms are ultimately going to compete? Do you think it will end up like a shopping mall model? Will there'll be a Walmart on one end, there'll be a Tiffany on the other, or is it just become a race to the bottom on fees? I think to date, we have not seen a ton of fee compression on the high net worth side. The high net worth side has historically not had access to alts. So I think that's the other component of this. I think over time, you certainly will see some fee compression for a few reasons. One is I think these platforms they are providing infrastructure that becomes a fee race to the bottom. Now, they're also providing access and in some cases providing diligence. So I think some of these platforms can make a case as to why they're charging the fees that they do. But over time, as with, you saw this with equities, so I was fixed income and we saw it with the types of products. The ETF industry is a good example. Over time, there was fee compression and a race to the bottom. So I think that will be the case in some senses. I think then you go into other frontiers. You can offer as a platform direct deals. You can offer other types of products. You can build out the platform in a horizontal way where you can continue to generate revenue or fees in other ways. But I do think over time, we will see a race to the bottom in fees for alts, which ultimately is good for the end client. I wrote a post about this week where I think that any alts platform needs to think about their business with the end client in mind, even if they're a B2B business. The iCapitals, Allocates, the Cases, et cetera, the AngelList, they are B2B businesses on one side. They work with either companies or funds. And then they also work with wealth managers, private banks, et cetera. Those are B2B clients. But ultimately, who's the end buyer of your product? In many of these cases, even when they're dealing with the intermediary, the end buyer of the product is an individual client, consumer, high net worth or a retail non-accredited investor. And those clients, at the end of the day, are who your customer is. And I think as long as platforms have that in mind, who they're serving and what it means to be giving access to alts for those clients, then they'll think about things in the right way when it comes to construct of business model fees and how to distribute product to this network. Because I think it is going to be a more and more important and powerful channel for the fund management community or the alt space in general to attract capital. What is the ultimate future of this space? Let's look into the crystal ball just for a minute. Do we end up with like a Schwab that offers you a dashboard for everything you want all in one place at one price? Or does this become, which might actually be a better option, is a is an unbundling process where even a qualified purchaser could create their own VC fund or they could create their own private equity fund? It's a good question. I think we've seen attempts at innovation like build your own ETF and then get clients to follow you. I think to some extent, we're seeing that in the venture world where people can create SPVs to enable other investors to invest into their funds or companies that they have access to. So effectively, using technology and network to monetize access, AngelList being a good example of that, I think that will continue to exist. But I believe that when it comes to wealth management more broadly, I think that the professional investor is generally going to win. I think we're going to see the rise of the professional investor in a period like this. It's hard to invest into private markets or public markets for that matter. The investors who consistently make money are the ones who are doing it every day on a professional basis. 
have the access, have the knowledge. That's the professional investor. I believe that in many cases, investors who want access to alt should be investing into funds or highly curated direct investment opportunities. A platform can provide some of that functionality if they do diligence, they have access, and they vet. But I think they should be doing it through the best, whether it's the top private equity funds, the top venture funds, et cetera. So I don't think we're necessarily going to see a peer-to-peer world of investing on the distribution side. I think where we'll see a lot of innovation is more around the infrastructure side. So what do I mean by that? The tokenization of assets, private markets assets of fund interests, of direct interests, and that's going to create efficiencies, which reduce costs for fund manager and for the platforms and ultimately for the end investor. So I think things like that will be really beneficial for the space. And that's already starting to happen. Many of the big funds start to think about tokenizing some of their interests or tokenizing a fund. I think fund admin ultimately could be tokenized. That would be fantastic for creating efficiencies. And that's where I think we're going to see a lot more innovation is around what the infrastructure looks like in the future. That to me is a future where, again, some are building it. Republic is building it. They have a token that effectively provides access to every single asset on their platform. iCapital's announced that they're figuring out how to work with the blockchain. Pace has done the same. I think that's where you'll see the innovation. Whereas the distribution, I think idea of investing with the best and generating the best returns will persist. So that's where I see less self-directed investment to some extent and more flight to quality. And then innovation on the infrastructure side reduces cost and that's good for everyone. So let's just shift gears for a second because I'd be very curious to hear you talk a little bit about your own evolution as an investor and learn what you've picked up and, and put down along the way. Yeah, so we started our fund at Broadhaven five years ago. We started as a sector-focused investor and we remain a sector-focused investor. We're fintech investors. Now, I think one thing that jumps out from that is the playbook that you come in with is not necessarily the game on the field. And that's happened in two ways for us. So one, I think I did not necessarily expect to invest into a supply chain logistics business when we started Broadhaven Ventures. I didn't expect to invest into a car leasing marketplace for Uber drivers in an on-demand car drivers in Brazil, a company called Covi, when we invested into fintech companies. But I realized that those are embedded finance businesses. And over time, you learn that one, I think you have to be flexible when it comes to investing in startups and investing in venture. I think now is another great example of that where innovation with AI, things like chat GPT, that's going to change the world of technology and other related industries. So be remiss to ignore some of these things and the impacts that they may have. So I think one is keeping an open mind and flexibility is really important. And that also relates to value and how you think about companies. There was one instance where a company was more expensive than we would have liked from a valuation perspective, but the business has become very large and it had a lot of traction. It was growing very fast. But at the time we said this didn't really fit in our box. And I think that was in hindsight a mistake. Sure, there have been plenty of cases where maybe that would not have been a mistake, but in this case it was. And that was just a good reminder that at times you really need to think about every opportunity, isolation, in a sense, evaluate it at face value as opposed to thinking about, oh, this doesn't fit what we do. And I understand why at times you have to triage. You only have so much time in a day and focus is really important in this industry. But I think if you think about venture, it's an outlier business. And there are only a select number of companies in any given year that are going to produce outsized returns and become outsized successes as companies. If you limit yourself, you miss the potential to see those opportunities. So I think those were some early lessons that we've learned and we've recalibrated. We do in a sense as well. We have the flexibility because we don't have outside capital at Broadhaven where we can invest at various stages and sizes. We focus on early stage, pre-seed, seed, and some series A. But when the venture market changed, we led a number of deals 2017, 18, and 19, where we were leading seed rounds that were sub $3 million in size. When it hit 2020 and 21, sure, there were still some of those deals to be found. But as more capital came into the venture space, it got harder to lead $3 million deals because bigger funds would come in and say, I'm going to do a 
$10 million seed round right off the bat. So we realized we had to change the way that we approach things in certain cases, because at the end of the day, it's about partnering with best companies, best founders. And that's where I think price and value come into that conversation. Sure, you can do very well by being very disciplined on price, but at the same time, you don't want to limit yourself from potentially investing in a great company, even if it's quote unquote more expensive. Because the question is, what is expensive and what is value? I think that's where we've spent a lot of time thinking about that concept. And I think it's been important to think about in various changes in the venture market. So you started a podcast to talk about alts going mainstream, and it's now turning into a community. Why did you decide to turn this into a digital media endeavor? And how's that going? I started Alt Goes Mainstream at the end of 2020, podcasting with many of the leaders in the alts industry and some of the largest asset managers, CEOs of the likes of Franklin Templeton, Russell Investments, Man Group, et cetera, really to educate people on the alt space. I also write blog posts as well, thought pieces on the space. This really stems from my time at iCapital, where I saw that the wealth management community, individual investors, wealth managers really want to understand this space and learn about it. And then on the other side, founders really want to understand how to navigate this community in who in many respects are the buyers of their investment products or participants on their platforms or customers of their software products. And I just saw a need to educate people on this space. So started two years ago, in addition to running Broadhaven Ventures. So it was very much something I did when I had the time to do it. But I got so much demand side pull that over the past few months, people have said, I found jobs through Alco's mainstream, through listening to this podcast, I've reached out to people and gotten a job, or I've invested on this platform where I've learned a ton from how this expert in the alt space, this fund manager thinks about it. So that demand side pull and all that organic growth made me realize I have to turn this into a business. Because people want this. I'm not even I did no I did no marketing. I would just podcast, write, I would tweet it out. That's pretty much it. Didn't spend a dime on marketing. And now I realize that there's just a ton of demand for this, which is great for the space because I think it shows there's a ton of interest. So I'm turning Alco's Mainstream into a broader collective. I'm calling it the AGM Collective. Why AGM from Alco's Mainstream? Because AGM stands for also stands for annual general meeting. That's a place where fund managers and their investors get together to talk about the fund, which is capital, talk about current environment, which is education and content and the community. So what is AGM Collective now? It's content. So there's podcasts and blog posts. It's community. There's dinners. There's events that bring people together. I've already done one. I just did one that was sponsored by Coots in London. And I'll be doing more dinners and events throughout the year and in years to come. And then it's capital. We launched a scout program where we're giving sponsored by Broadhaven Ventures. So Broadhaven is providing capital to founders in our portfolio to start to invest into alts and fintech companies so that they can build an investment track record and they can help out these other companies in the space. So that that's really the broader business is to build a whole platform and collective around the alt space so that collectively we can just move the space forward. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Michael Sidgmore, I appreciate you joining me today. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. And congrats on the content platform that you're building as well. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.